welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. fourth Sunday of Advent. We have a great hope in this fourth Sunday of Advent, a hope we've not really had as strongly as before because we have vaccines to COVID. They're not just being made somewhere. They're not just being discussed and approved. They're arriving. They're being given to people right now in our state, among our community. People are receiving vaccines. Is that not a reason for joy Can you hear me? Amen. Are you with me? Because we have been going through this time of COVID for so long, so much longer than we ever thought possible. Remember, and it was just a few weeks back in March. Remember back in February and January when we thought, oh, it'll never get here. But then it was. Well, it'll never come to our state. And then it did. Well, it'll just be a few weeks. And then it wasn't. And here we are, nine months, 10 months later, still fighting this fight. And how many lives have been lost? How many lives have been affected? Oddly enough, how many people still today are denying it's even happening? Yes, but I think every one of us knows someone who has had it or you've had it yourself. We all know someone who has died because of it. We can all look at the numbers and see how they've been rising lately. I mean, much higher than they ever were before these last several weeks. And it doesn't mean the presence of these vaccines that suddenly the tragedy's over. It doesn't. It doesn't. We're, we're, we still have a ways to go. Months, maybe a year before the vaccines to everybody. But there is a sense of joy that the vaccine is here. It's as if the beginning of the end has begun. And that gives us a great sense of joy and purpose. It gives us drive and it gives us life because we know the end is coming of this tragedy that we've been all living together as an entire planet. It's coming to an end. It's not gone and it's still doing more damage today than it ever has done. But we know the end is coming and it's started. And there's great joy for that. Now, this inevitable end, it brings us great hope that something's different this week than it was last week or the week before, not because anything's changed in our life other than we know how much closer the end has come to us. And that hope, it grants us a peace. Even while we experience the pain and anger, that peace enables us to love, to give of ourselves, to continue to persevere in a way that's outwardly focused. We can keep this kind of idea. We can talk about many things. Racism. Racism is the same thing. Racism isn't over, but the beginning of the end has begun. It wasn't but 70 years ago that it was illegal to be an American citizen if you didn't have skin that looked like mine. And now look where we are. We have a long way to go, but we're getting there. There are people still now in the streets standing up 
standing up for justice, giving of themselves. There are, there are people that are standing up for many causes. The things that have put fear into the hearts of those who are in charge, those who create realities where people die and experience catastrophic struggle for just simply being who they are. Maybe it's how they look. Maybe it's how they love. Maybe it's how they worship. The pain is still here, but we have hope. And the hope is real. And that brings us joy. That brings us joy. The pain and sorrow and death we know one day, according to Revelation, will be no more. It's still here, but we have joy because we know that end is inevitable. And in some way, it's already begun. Even amidst the darkness, we have the light. Even amidst evil, we have goodness. Even amidst all that we experience, we have joy. Amen? And this joy, we're, we're going to hear of this joy in such a beautiful way in our scripture passage today because Mary has the full realization of what all is beginning to happen in her, through her, because of her. And it washes over her and out of her erupts this song, this poem of pure joy, of affirmation. And it, it erupts in such a way that we refer to it by the first word in the Latin translation, magnificat, this great magnifying of the Lord. We can't fully grasp the power of this poem unless we really understand what all Mary was dealing with in her time. We know our time. We know our struggles but they're much different than Mary's struggles. The world today is in better shape than it ever has been. You take COVID aside, everything else is in better shape than it ever has been, and there's lots of research to back that up. You go back 2,000 years, it was quite different, especially for Mary and her people. See, she's an Israelite, and for centuries, hundreds and hundreds and a 1,000 years, Israel has been conquered, oppressed, occupied, enslaved, they were defeated and exiled. They were returned. There were more wars. There was more occupation. And they've just lived under the boot of some other group of people who thought that they were better than Israel. So much so that they thought their boot belonged on the throat of Israel. The boot of Mary's day was Rome. Rome, was, Rome filled the whole ancient Near Eastern world all around the Mediterranean. They had it all. Caesar was the highly favored son of God. The prince of peace, the peace brought through violence under the myth of redemptive violence. Rome, Rome owned Israel's land. It belonged to them, which means they could tax the people and take whatever they wanted at any time. They could take land. They could take goods. They could take people and daughters and lives. And so Rome collected taxes to further their war and violence, their peace well, they couldn't go there and collect it all themselves, so they would put kings in place to collect the taxes. And so they had Herod. Herod, who did, who did all sorts of great things for Caesar in Rome. Herod would collect the taxes of Rome, but would collect a lot more than was necessary because that would also be Herod's taxes. So Herod could do these great things and create entire cities in honor of Caesar. And Herod couldn't collect all the taxes himself, so he'd send tax collectors. And the tax collectors would collect some for themselves because that's how they made their living. There was no one keeping track of how much was being collected other than what the tax collectors collected. They have to get X amount 
to Herod. They could, whatever was left over, it didn't matter. Herod didn't care because Herod got what was his. Now, what was his, of course, part of that was going to go to Rome, and Rome didn't care how much extra Herod raised. And so it's estimated Israel paid about 90% taxes, 90% of what they made, which was next to nothing. 90% of it went straight to collectors and kings and Caesars. Most of the land in Galilee, the land where trees and farms were, where dates and grapes and figs and many wonderful things were grown. That land used to be owned by families, families that had been passed down, it was their land, but they couldn't pay their taxes. And so they may have been forced to give away animals or resources or daughters or their land itself. And that land was then taken by those in charge and I mean, what's Caesar going to do with the land? Caesar would gift it to people. So there would be kings and lords of other places that owned the land, or some of the land was even given to priests in Israel. Rich priests owned land of their own people and then hired the people who used to own it to farm it for next to nothing. And then they collected, and then they paid their taxes. And this whole system was built like any system built by powerful, greedy people, built to serve those at the top at the expense of those at the bottom. And so people were forced to work their own land for next to nothing and live a life of poverty. And there was great humiliation to work your own land for nothing. And in Mary's world, shame and honor, I mean, they were what everything was about. It was humiliating to many of them. That was their life. Because of greed, the rich people just got richer. Their stomachs were already full and they got fuller. Their excess just became more excessive because people at the top make the rules. They make the systems. They adjust things to keep things flowing their direction because they're the ones that are wearing the boots in the first place. And the people whose boot, who are under the boot can't do anything about it. Mary, a young betrothed teenager had received news amidst all this that would completely rock her world, completely rocked all of ours. Yeah, completely rocked hers. She learned she was going to be pregnant, but not by the man that she was betrothed to marry. In a world of shame and honor, that's a big deal. This was too soon for her story. Motherhood, pregnancy, that wasn't to happen yet, and yet it was happening out of sequence. And there would be great shame upon her because it didn't look right according to the world. Elizabeth, her cousin, had received news that rocked her world. She was pregnant, but long past the days of being able to have children. And so she had been labeled barren. And in their society, that was an embarrassment to be barren. Pregnancy and motherhood, they were supposed to happen long ago. And yet they're happening now out of sequence there would be great scandal and great joy at this gift, mystery and doubt, and her husband whose doubt led him to the point of being struck mute by God. What a scene. Now these two women, they're living lives of miracle, but out of sequence, not in proper order, shouldering shame and scandal, completely bewildered by it all in an occupied land overtaxed, abused, and surrounded by people being humiliated by the powerful and the rich, some of which were their own people. These surrounded by people that are hungry and poor and working to fill the treasuries 
and to fill the stomachs and to increase the excess of those who live somewhere else. A seed of doubt maybe lingered in Mary's mind. I mean, could this really be happening what the angel said? How? When? She goes to see Elizabeth, and we don't know exactly the reason why. We can guess. She was told, at the time of her news, she was told about Elizabeth's news. And she goes, and it seems to be that when they met and they connect and Mary realizes that Elizabeth is, as the angel said, it suddenly affirms her own reality. So it's as if she wasn't sure. She couldn't tell anybody what was happening. The only person who might understand would be Elizabeth. But what would Elizabeth think? She greets Elizabeth. Elizabeth runs and full of joy and speaking of her own child leaping in the womb affirms to Mary that everything that has been said by the angel is true. And not only that, but if that's true, then every single thing that's ever been said by God is true. So this barren woman, this unwed teenager, this lowly couple of no status, no power, they're favored by the highest God. Could it be? Well, we know the answer is yes. Yes. Mary truly embraces in this moment. Yes. And so we hear her response. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yes, this poem, it, it just evokes a lot of power and energy that, that spans well before Mary's time. I mean, the history and purpose of Israel all wrapped up and echoed in this poem. And actually, the root of the poem comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. It comes from a woman named Hannah. Hannah is a mother who's found out she's going to have a son when she didn't think she would. Her son, then she goes and gives to God, gives him to the temple and says, Here, I dedicate him to you and hands him to a great prophet named Eli. And Eli then raises up Samuel. Samuel goes on to anoint Israel's greatest king, David. 
Now, there's a lot more story between those two points, and it's worth reading, but eventually leads to the anointing of David. David, the greatest king, the king that brings about a promise made long ago. We can go all the way back to Genesis 12 for that promise, because in Genesis 12, God promised Sarah and Abraham that through their family, and again, a barren woman, Sarah, their family would be the source of blessing for all families. Your translation might say tribe. It might say nation, but it means family. Through their family, all families would be blessed. And so we find their descendants growing and growing and growing, becoming Israel, going through slavery and redemption and freedom and war. And now they're, now they're a nation, but they're still occupied. And then eventually Hannah gives Samuel to Eli and Samuel anoints David. And David then brings Israel into the state of freedom and liberty in a way they've never experienced. And suddenly they are blessed beyond measure. And Israel is everything they had always hoped it would be, except Israel's promise was to always be a blessing for everyone else. So David, this great king, the greatest king of the Hebrew people, he was given a promise. His promise from God was that someone from his family would always be on the throne to continue this reign of Israel in this unique way. Except that it had been a long time in Mary's day since the son of David was on the throne. David, great Hebrew king, the ancestor of a man named Joseph. Joseph, the man Mary was set to be married to, the man that would raise Jesus, the king. Mary's song of joy is for all these great promises. Suddenly she's realizing they're coming to fruition in her and through her and for her. Just as Israel's family was blessed by David, all families would be blessed by the king she would give to the world. This king, this king, it would be well beyond Israel, would do what Israel was always meant to do, which is to bring that blessing and bless the whole world, for that family to bless all families. The birth of her son would be the beginning of the end of the old reality, the old age, the end of occupiers, the end of the rich living in excess making the rules to further their excess at the expense of the poor, those who had no power, no money, no say, no chance, no more putting people under boots to further their, their own security. And for Mary, the beginning and the end spoke a great joy for the humiliated and the abused. They will live just as everyone else, no longer mistreated, no longer excluded, no longer degraded, no longer under a boot. That's all they want. For the boot wearers, the end of injustice is devastating, at least at first. One day they'll realize that living the life of wearing the boot is a prison for them too. For those whose necks are being held on by the boot, this news is of wonderful, unbelievable, overwhelming joy. Those who wear the boots they're going to continue, and they still are going to great lengths to maintain the status quo because it benefits them. But those who have the joy, they have the joy that brings with them hope and peace and love, and that will outlast all of the efforts made by those who prefer the boots because this is how the whole thing works, friends. This is how God works. It is not power that brings about 
true joy and true reality. It's love, it's hope, it's peace, it's joy. The birth of her son will not be an immediate end. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later and we're still dealing with a lot of the stuff, a lot of the same things that were going on then. Plenty of rich people getting richer at the expense of the poor. Plenty of people with excess and abundance while others starve and die across this great world. Plenty of power in the form of bigotry. Plenty of power exercised in hatred and exclusion. But the days of evil are numbered, my friends. For Mary, it's as good as done, which is why if you noticed in the poem, when she sings of all the things that God is doing, God has already done. God has already brought mercy and strength. God has already pulled down and scattered the powerful and rich. God has already lifted up and filled the poor and hungry. God has already come to the aid of Israel because it's happening in her. It's already done. It just hasn't fully happened yet. It's, it's already final. It's just not completed. We live today in the midst of disease and oppression, of corruption at the very top. And seeks that, that oppression seeks to disregard and throw out those that they've deemed less than. But, but the less than, those of us who are alive and awake to this, we have joy because we have Jesus Christ. God has come. God has begun the great day of the Lord when all things will be set to right where the exalted will be lowered, the humiliated will be brought up, and we'll all be one together. When all families on earth will experience the blessings of God. We stand today as people of faith in Jesus Christ. We don't ignore the darkness and pain and oppression and injustice and death. In fact, we should be going out and meeting it head on and addressing it and fighting against it. But we certainly see it, and we see that their days are numbered. We stand in the midst of tragedy and catastrophe, unscathed, because we know that God has come to set things right. And it is good. It's as good as done. Even amidst the tears of all that we see and experience and hear around us and of the broken hearts that we know of, that we've experienced ourselves, that we witness, we have joy because we know the end of the story and we are a part of the end of the story. In the most mysterious way, most bewildering way, we are able to live into the end of the story today in our hearts and souls. The end is somehow a reality for us in our own hearts and souls. And the whole purpose of that is to be the beacon of hope and peace and love and joy in a world that does not know what we know. A pregnant, unwed mother and an older, barren wife reminds us of the truth. God has come, remembering mercy, fulfilling the promises made to Sarah and Abraham and Hannah and David and Mary and Elizabeth and us and the whole world, every family that has ever existed that will ever exist. God ushers in the joy of Jesus Christ this Advent season, the joy which cannot be overcome, the joy which does not waver, it does not stumble, it does not ignore the reality of evil, but it plants its feet firmly on the truth that unto us a child is born. My friends, receive your king. Bow down and worship. Give your heart and soul and life and dreams and desires and fears and understandings of the world 
give it all to Christ. Trust in his way and in his inevitable victory, which is already won. Let us prepare ourselves and enter into joy this Christmas. Amen. We thank you for joining us today, and it is our hope that you have experienced the blessing of God through our time together. If you'd like to know more about our church community and its ministries, visit our website at sellersburgumc.com. 